Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And of course, I want to thank our sponsors in the second hour for making this show economically viable. They are American Manganese, Barkerville Gold Mines, Crocodile Gold Corp., Entertopia Corporation, Go West Limited, Smash Minerals Corp., and Trevally Mining Corporation. Well, Ian, uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about the housing market, the abysmal housing market. And if that isn't difficult enough for the American consumers, we have a rising oil price, an oil price, and food prices are rising too and have been. So you have a uh, an American consumer who is tapped out on his credit cards. He's losing his job, or his job that he's getting is not keeping up with the cost of living. So his living standards are declining, as you mentioned uh, in the first uh, in the in the last segment. Uh, we have the oil prices now around a hundred bucks, and you are talking about the possibility of a decline in the equity markets. I think, although we haven't yet talked about it, a decline in the commodity markets. Could this give some relief to the American consumer? Could we see a plunge in the oil prices and hence the gasoline prices uh, that might provide some offsetting uh, help to a very badly hurting American consumer? Uh, not, I don't think that there's going to be that much relief uh, for the American consumer vis-a-vis the gasoline price. Uh, it did come off a little bit just before the Memorial Day start of the of the driving season. But the larger problem on the oil price is not even an American domestic supply because the, the WTI price that people watch, which is the one that's around $100, is trading at a significant discount uh, to the global oil price, which is running closer to $115. Mm-hmm. If you look at the table in the Wall Street Journal, for example, you'll see that the Alaska crude and the Louisiana crude are trading $10 above the price that everybody watches. Mm. And I think oil prices are going to stay a lot higher in large part because of all of the nonsense that's going on in North Africa and in the Middle East. Now, the, the Libyan production is, is basically off stream at this point, and in spite of all the noise, Gaddafi still seems to be in power. And uh, the American media isn't paying that much attention to it, but there's tremendous tension going on in the Middle East that's not going to go away. And the net result is I'm, I'm very concerned that, there's, that there will be incidents in the Middle East that can, could, in fact, result in oil price spikes rather than oil price collapses. Now, in terms of the U.S. economy slowing down, I think it's already shown up mm-hmm. that you know, Joe Sixpack, as I refer to him, is putting more money into the tank and has less money to spend at Walmart. Mm-hmm. You can already see the, the slowdown of, you know, from the high gasoline price at $4.00. But if we get into a crisis mode, it's not impossible you could see four fifty or five dollars. Mm-hmm. And then on the on the food price side, uh, you've had extraordinary weather conditions of either massive floods, massive chilling, or massive storms disrupting global output of assorted crops around the world. And I think agree. I think we're going to see ongoing food inflation. Which is not going to get, that's not going to get a relief uh, just because uh, consumer demand slows down. That's more of almost more of an annual cyclical kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think we've got a year of high prices already locked into the food market. Wow! And the result is that's why consumer spending in the U.S. I think is going to be much weaker than people are expecting. Mm-hmm. 
Of course, the job situation isn't helping the American consumer either. Um, You mentioned also in your letter about uh, the concerns that OPEC, uh, you know, the way things are going over there with the political turmoil and all, that that they might be using oil again as an economic weapon as they did in the 1970s. Could you explain your thought process on that? No, exactly. Well, in the 1970s, uh, the OPEC producers were led by Sheikh Yamani of Saudi Arabia. And after the Arab-Israeli War of 67, uh, they were quite unhappy uh, with the resolution of that. And then then, uh, when Lyndon Johnson announced a guns and butter policy in 1968 that essentially said we're going to fight the Vietnam War and and just pay for it with deficit spending, and we're going to have the Great Society... Mm-hmm. They became really concerned that the they were being paid depreciating dollars for their oil, mm-hmm. and in part because of the antagonism over the Arab-Israeli war, that they basically d- declared that they were not going to accept these depreciating dollars, and they were raising the oil price to protect the purchasing power mm-hmm. of what they were selling their oil for. Mm-hmm. And when I and when I flip forward to the present. I can see the same sort of deterioration of respect for U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East that could end up as a, as a coordinating force amongst the disparate OPEC influences, where they could start to use the deficits and the, and the debt problems of the U.S. as an excuse for sustaining the high oil price. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very reminiscent to me of what I recall from that period when, of Johnson's Great Society and Sheikh Yamani reacting to it. Sure. In this case, uh, we're just printing trillions of dollars to, to bail out banks and, and uh, whatever our government decides. Of course, also to finance our military, I suppose. Whatever the, the enormous amount of expenditures is uh, not being paid for by taxes, that's for sure. Well, although... Nobody is uh, is is seeing their tax uh, tax liabilities go down much here. That's for sure. Uh, the, other, the other element the other element to it as well that doesn't get much recognition within the U.S. markets mm-hmm. that China, Brazil, India, Russia, Korea have entered into bilateral agreements with each other mm-hmm. that on terms of their own trade balances that they will settle with each other in terms of their own currency. They've got relative control over their currencies that they will allow their trading partners to hold it. Mm-hmm. And the real motivation behind that is to stop their buildup of dollar holdings. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think that the American capital markets really grasp the significance of that because these budget deficits that are projected to run forever are presuming that foreign buyers are going to keep coming back to U.S. Treasury paper. Mm-hmm. And basically, China and those others basically hold about $5.3 trillion of foreign exchange reserves, most of which are in dollars. And they're converting those dollars into tangible assets just about as quickly as they can without provoking Congress into some sort of uh, protectionist retaliation. Mm-hmm. They're spending those dollars, and they're taking steps to the buildup of future dollar holdings. Yeah, those uh, you would be talking about the BRIC countries, then I suppose, and these would be the same countries that would be pushing for some sort of a basket of currencies that would be uh, that might contain or might include gold. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, let's say Ian that uh, that OPEC does play this game and starts using go- uh, oil as an economic weapon. How high could the price of oil go then? Oh, I think you'll certainly see the 150 level. I wouldn't rule out 200 in a crisis. Uh, I'm sorry. Potentially higher than that. Mm-hmm. 
But it, you know, put it this way, any spike above 150 is probably going to be relatively short-lived because of the fallout effect that it would have. Much as much as you saw the American consumer pulling his horns when when the oil, when the gas price hit over four dollars mm-hmm. before Labor, before Memorial Day, mm-hmm. you push that gas price up to around five dollars. Uh, the uh, major throughways are going to look like empty parking lots. Well, that would be a, a disaster for the American economy. No doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Um, if we get a serious decline in equities and commodities, what do you think the impact? Uh, well, actually, that's really what I was going to ask you about the oil. The oil price. So you don't see the oil price necessarily coming down real hard as it did, say, after Lehman Brothers, uh, the Lehman Brothers default and the problems we had in 2008, 2009. This time, because of the problems in the Middle East, because of their concerns about a declining dollar. Uh, those things you just mentioned, I guess. Well, I think the, the difference, the, the other major difference between this time and that time, I think in the summer of 07, in the summer of 07 all of the commodity markets had a huge amount of leverage built into them. And on the more recent oil price run, uh, where we got up to 140, I don't think you had the same kind of leverage trade structured in as through the derivative markets. Mm-hmm. It just it didn't have the same speculative feel to it. Yeah. And I think I think basically the the Middle East uncertainty in a really sharp downturn would probably cap the downside to about eighty five or ninety dollars, maybe eighty dollars. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think you know the idea at that previous one it crashed right back down into the thirties briefly. Mm-hmm. But I think that was a liquidation of speculation. I don't think we have that same degree of speculation in oil mm-hmm. uh, this time around to liquidate. Mm-hmm. You know, the greater speculation this time around, ironically, was in the silver market. Mm-hmm. And that <clears throat> we want to get to the silver markets and the gold markets in just a minute. But do you think then that um, that do you see a rising oil price or let's say a, a skyrocketing an oil price that would that would spike up as a result of uh, the political uh, of OPEC's uh, politics? Do you think that would would be deflationary or inflationary to the U.S. economy, or would that depend on the monetary policies of our central banks? I think initially it could have a deflationary impact, mm-hmm. in large part because of the, essentially the demand destruction that would occur. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a sharp spike has a, has a much sharper impact mm-hmm. in terms of demand destruction. Mm-hmm. And uh, in spread, your- it would spread through the other um, all of the the base metals as well. It'll have less impact on food because food essentially is partly governed by by crop availability. Mm-hmm. In your last letter, you talked about the uh, the Asian markets, and you just mentioned them, I think, a little while ago as well. Uh, that you said, and I quote: "This, uh, in referring to the Asian markets, you said this suggests we may be closer than many realize to the precipice of the second half." of that mega bear cycle within the flat to down secular trend that dates from the year 2000. So you're you're still looking at this as we are in a secular bear market uh, starting in 2000 and how much longer do you think it has to run? Oh, I think it still has several years to run because I've, I've talked for quite a few years about the concept of cycles within the secular trend mm-hmm. and in essence this this secular trend topped in, it, it may have it may have topped in 1998 when we had the long-term capital management bailouts, or probably more realistically topped with the Nasdaq high-tech top in in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And since that time, we've had two massive sell-offs 
and then recoveries. But in essence, what we've done is very much what we did from 1966 to 1982. We've gone sideways with some really, you know, really big uh, bull markets and bear markets along the way. But on balance, we're still where we were back then. And, you know, in today's market terms, you've got the Wilshire 5000 index still roughly where it was in 1998. Mm. You know, and the, the thing I point to on the, on the recovery we've had since March of 2009 is the Wilshire 5000 index, which is, you know, viewed as a proxy for total market cap, it's recovered about $7.5 trillion of value which is what a lot of analysts will call a great bull market. Mm-hmm. But I point out that it only costs you $5 trillion of public debt and <laughs> $2 trillion of the Fed's balance sheet. So what did you really buy? Right. You know, is, there any really, is there a real net gain, and will the next generation thank you for it? Yes, the debt doesn't go away, does it? And one of the things that I think is most remarkable, if you look at the total U.S. dollar debt, it's growing almost exponentially. And if you look at the GDP, if it's growing at all, uh, it's it's in a linear fashion of growth, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that you can't sustain that forever. Um, if, you, if you actually saw the U.S. dollar debt with everything included, because they don't include all the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and all the other implicit mm-hmm. guarantees that they've got onto it, mm-hmm. you know, if you add in all of the liabilities of the U.S. government, they make Greek uh, the Greeks look like fiscal disciplinarians. Yeah, in fact, uh, you mentioned also, uh, you've mentioned in your letter that you see, if we watch what's going on in Greece and Ireland, it was a prelude to what we can expect here on a much grander scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so you believe that we're, so we're still in the secular bear market. Do you think we're going to take out the 2009 lows? I, I Ultimately, yes, I think we have to. Mm-hmm. I think and go to where? Will in due course. And and what would be a, sort of a bottom? A I, the mistakes that are going to compound it haven't been made yet. Mm-hmm. What worries me is the history of the American government, that in the times of crisis they tend to turn inward mm-hmm. and become protectionist. Mm-hmm. And that in a sense, what happened in the 1930s was compounded by the protectionism that the U.S. went towards in the 30s after the bear market was well underway. Mm-hmm. And I fear that the same kind of mistake could be made again. Mm. You know, it, it would be a political mistake, but it's, it, it will be logical politics at the time during a crisis. Mm-hmm. That's, the thing that, that's the thing that worries me most. That's why I, I, when I'm asked for the downside, my response invariably is the mistakes that will compound it haven't been made yet, but I haven't got any confidence in the people making the decisions. No. What about the potential for turning outwardly in a military fashion? Because if you've got the large numbers of unemployed people, you've got a huge military machinery um, and corporations that love to see you go over there and beat the heck out of people and take their oil or, or, or resources. Uh, what about that as, as a um, response to a problem? Well, the problem, the problem the American military has right now, you've got so many undeclared wars underway already. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure what they could do. What else they could do? Yeah, it's uh, you know it's the Libyan the Libyan situation. There's now I've seen pictures on the internet of what appear to be Western uh, military people, whether they're European or American, nobody knows. But it appears that boots on the ground didn't last very long. That there mm-hmm. are boots on the ground over there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're still in Afghanistan. Pakistan's a hornet's nest. 
uh, you know, Iraq, I mean, you remember Iraq was going to pay for itself because we were going to end up with $10 oil. Yeah. You know, that's <laughs> just... I, my, my confidence in the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about mm-hmm. is uh, even lower now than it was then. Mm-hmm. Well, we have problems ahead. There's no doubt about that. You're Canadian. How do you see uh, this all affecting um, you and your compatriots up there? Well, the, the the one good thing for Canada is, number one, the resource base of the Canadian economy, and number two, the fiscal discipline that the governments of Canada have pursued for the last 10 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. So Canada, of the G7 countries, Canada is in the best shape. But at the same time, we're terrifically exposed to what happens in the U.S. economy because you've got a 3,500-mile border. And, you know, something like 90% of the population is essentially tied to the U.S. economy by proximity, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. So we're vulnerable to what happens in the U.S., but we will come through it a lot better. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have a housing bust, for example, in part because mortgage interest has never been a tax deduction in Canada. Yeah. So we have our housing bubbles from time to time, but they're not as badly leveraged as the housing situation was in the States. Mm Mm-hmm. But for the most part, Canada's going to come through it in better shape than the U.S., but if the U.S. catches pneumonia, we're going to have a medical problem, too. Mm-hmm. Well, it, with respect to um, uh, the markets, uh, we have had this market uh, rise, as you, ta- as you pointed out, and you know a lot of people think it's quite a bull market since March of 2009. But you made the comment in your last newsletter that there's nothing normal about this recovery. Could you explain to our listeners why you say yeah. that? Basically, this entire recovery has been bought with tax dollars, with deficit dollars. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the QE1, the QE2, the expansion of the debt, the Fed's purchasing activity, what they've done is they bailed out the banking system, or as the popular phrase is, they bailed out Wall Street, but they haven't really bailed out Main Street. Mm-hmm. And in in essence, uh, we're at the end of QE2, coming up shortly. And Bernanke's going to have to wait until the economy gets hurt a little more before he can justify some sort of a QE3. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the world may not buy that. You know, the, the QE, announcement of QE3 could set off a major dollar crisis. Mm-hmm. And that's well, where I, I, keep coming back, I keep coming back to the fact that within the commodity spectrum, the, the bull market in gold has completely changed character, where gold is now trading as a currency. Mm-hmm with substantially lower volatility than any of the other metals. Mm-hmm. And in some reasons, that, that was what compounded the more recent excitement that we saw in the silver market. Mm-hmm. The gold was trading as a disciplined currency, mm-hmm. where silver went absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. So your point is that, uh, obviously, gold is a much better uh, metal, a much better monetary metal than silver is. So. Well, it, not just as a monetary metal, but as an asset class. Mm-hmm. You know, in a in a sharp, if the stock market falls twenty percent in a you know let's say in a three or four month period of time, gold will preserve purchasing power better than anything. Mm-hmm. You know that you literally you may have you may even have twenty percent movements in some of the currencies. Gold will go down the least and go up more the minute there's any sign of relief. And, well, we you know as a result, that's where I talk about gold as opposed to the gold mining shares. The shares are stocks when the margin clerks are selling accounts. Yeah. We certainly saw that happen, Ian, after Lehman Brothers' uh, declined uh, failure. 
and the plunge in the markets, we saw the real price of gold rise, what an ounce of gold would buy relative to all the other uh, all the other commodities. For, the, for example, I like to measure it against the Rogers Raw Material Fund, and it went up a lot against silver, too, initially. And then when the risk trade came back on, uh, silver outperformed gold. Uh, speaking of the dollar, because it's just so important, obviously, as the world's still the world's reserve currency, Jim Lyle said at the Wealth Protection Conference uh, in Tempe, Arizona, a few weeks ago that you also attended, he talked about, I think it was 71.36 on the dollar index, and Jim is sort of a deflationist. I, I sort of buy a lot of his views, but he says, look, if we go below that, if the dollar, if we plunge below that support level, that all-time low, that we could see a Katie bar the door event and see the dollar plunge, and he believes that that could set off a hyperinflationary event. Are you, would you agree with that, or would you? what would be your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I wouldn't try to pin, pinpoint a specific breakdown level. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the hyperinflation uh, result, I think that a hyperinflationary move results from a deflationary crash. Mm-hmm. And the deflationary crash, in my mind, would show up first and foremost in the S&P 500, take down all asset classes, and then Bernanke fires up the helicopters, and this time he drops it on Main Street as well as, as Wall Street. That's right. So basically, fear the deflationary crash that leads to a hyperinflationary attempt to bail or to bail mm-hmm. out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that certainly would seem to be a plausible uh, scenario, uh, one that we have to uh, hope never happens, because I think there's nothing more dangerous and devastating um, to a civilization, to a, a free people. I don't know how free we are anymore, though, because I saw this past weekend they were arresting people for dancing. Uh, dancing at the uh, at the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, I regularly use I regularly use the phrase that what's left of the U.S. Constitution. Right. You know, it's yeah. rather frightening to see what's been torn out of it. Yeah, I don't know what is left of it. There isn't very much left of it for sure. If free speech is taken away, and that certainly would be the case, seemingly mm-hmm. uh, from these dem- if people that were just dancing, and they were told if they didn't stop, they were going to be put them in jail, and they uh, and they asked the officer well, on the basis of what law, and he says, you live more than 50 miles away from Washington, D.C., we have to make sure you're going to show up at, in court when, when we want you there, so we're going to put you in jail, well, and that, that was the answer. It's the same with the Obama press conferences and before that with the Bush press conferences where they now have detainment areas where if you want to go and protest against something, they basically shunt you away from where the cameras are. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, just, it's horrifying what's gone on in the U.S. It, and people, most people are completely oblivious to it, I think. Uh, anyway, so we could see this. Okay, so the dollar and the decline of the dollar, of course, it, it sort of leads us up to gold and silver, um, but especially gold. Uh, so in sort of this deflation first, hyperinflation later scenario, would you see then, I think based on what you were saying, you would see gold becoming stronger, its purchasing power getting, uh, you know, increasing, and therefore incre- improving the economics, the, the gold mining economics. Would you agree with that? Well, the, the gold mining economics, they basically, the industry has a problem. They got, they, all the consolidation of recent years, they got too big. Mm-hmm. And the problem is they've always carried fairly generous multiples of their, their so-called earnings. Mm-hmm. But most of those earnings are actually return on capital mm-hmm. because they're consuming their reserves every time they sell an ounce of gold. Mm-hmm. And once they got the big, the major companies up into the three to six million ounce per annum production level, yeah. They have to add that much gold to their reserves. Every year. 
every year. And the problem is discoveries like that are not being made. They're very rare. And the result is then the major companies get into the business of making expensive takeover offers for the juniors that are developing, you know, new prospects. And the result is the major gold mining companies have been diluting the daylights out of their existing shareholders to replace the reserves. Mm. Hmm. And that, that, to me, that's the argument against the owning the major gold shares. And the one good thing that's occurred in recent years was the creation of GDXJ, which is an ETF of 50 junior companies, all of whom, in my view, uh, you know, they're, they're existing companies. They have, or they have, and are developing mines of various sizes and statures around the world. But those are the companies that are going to have to be taken over by the majors to try, to try and sustain the illusion of uh, being growth companies. Mm -hmm. So my impression and my recommendation to people is you buy the GDXJ mm -hmm. rather than the GDX, which is the ETF of the major companies, mm -hmm. because I think the juniors will continue to outperform the seniors, mm -hmm. largely fueled by takeovers. Well, certainly you comment uh, in your last letter about the charts uh, for the juniors and the seniors. I think you showed a double top for the senior index. Uh, the juniors looking somewhat better on the charts? Uh, they're looking a little better, but again, I want to see how they react on an S&P sell-off. Yeah. Because when you look at the long history, and I've been tracking gold stock indexes for 50 years, or you know, close to 50 years, and I've got history back to the 30s. In a stock market decline, they go down as stocks. Mm -hmm. but the only real time to be looking at buying the major gold stocks is in when you're about two-thirds of the way through a stock market decline of consequence. That's mm -hmm. typically when the gold shares hold their make a bottom. Mm, okay. And then they start to hold while the stock market keeps going down. And it's that divergence that really becomes the key signal to look for. That's when very interesting. Stop falling while the S&P is still falling. Mm. That's very interesting. I, I wonder if someone will ring the bell for us and tell us when we're two-thirds of the way through. I, I, Maybe you I, can do that. I hope to do that in my newsletter when, yeah. when I can hear it, but my hearing's not as good as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but your eyes are still pretty good, Ian, and that's all you need for the charts. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that's something to keep in mind because I've been telling my subscribers all along that I believe the, the shares are going to get taken down with a general market decline. However, at the same time, I see the real price of gold rising, hence improving the underlying economics for the industry as a whole, notwithstanding the problems you just cited for the majors. I like a lot of the juniors that are producers, smaller producers that are growing in their production. Uh, I'm wondering if some of those in that 50, uh, in a, among those 50 companies in the GDXJ, like would there be some smaller or new producers in there, or are they just strictly exploration companies? Oh, no, those are largely evolving producers. They, sure. You know, they don't include uh, just raw exploration mm -hmm. in that index. Mm -hmm. you know, when they published the list, I hadn't, I hadn't even heard of about half of the names. Mm -hmm. But they're all, you know, they're all over the world. It's a global, it's a true global index. Mm -hmm. But in, in my view, you know, we've seen, we've seen some takeovers already. Yeah. So that uh, the the Redback takeover uh, by Kinross, for example, was one. Where I mm -hmm. never I never even really heard of that deposit before they paid for it, and Kinross has been punished by the market ever since because the market thought they overpaid for it. What do you recall what they paid per ounce, or would you have some sense of it? I don't remember the number, but I remember everybody being horrified by yeah. it because yeah. they weren't paying for the declared ounce; they were paying for the potential of the deposit because they right. didn't do the geology. Right. 
And Gold Corp took over Andea or Andean, I think, uh, with with a very high number. I don't remember what it was either. Mm-hmm. So, so the so the message is that the money is to be made in the juniors and those companies in the GDXJ. And honestly, I see the new producers, some of those with huge exploration and growth potential, as being the most exciting stories. Those are the guys probably that will be takeover targets too. And I'm seeing you know 30, 35, 40 percent. Uh, premiums paid against the market price for takeovers, and if it's an, if you really have a, a competitive bidding process, then it can it can get outrageous, I suppose, uh, outrageously expensive or very good for the junior mining companies. Well, speaking of junior mining companies, you are involved with one, uh, and this is really a an exploration uh, speculative exploration story at this point in time, uh, but you know obviously uh, success with these kinds of companies can bring huge upside potential in the company. Uh, I'm talking about is Duncan Park Holdings trades on uh, the Toronto Exchange under the symbol DPH, and you can buy it in the U.S. under the symbol DCNPF. 83 million shares outstanding, eight cents in, gives it a market cap of around seven million dollars. Could you tell our listeners something about Duncan Park, and, and maybe first of all tell tell us what your role is in the company? Well, I'm I'm now the president and CEO of the company. I was a director of it when the president died a couple of years ago, and he died at a very inconvenient time where we literally had no money until we were in the process of having to give up the property that we had in Nevada. And then I I came up with this option to earn into a block of claims in the Red Lake, which is within three kilometers or four kilometers of Gold Corp's high-grade mine in Canada. Mm Mm-hmm. And in essence, we, we've got to spend a million dollars to earn 75% of this property. And then we expanded the property with a second deal that requires spending another million dollars to earn the, up to 100% of that one. And the option that we have, uh, the, the, the other side basically can claw back 51% control of the situation by paying us four times what we spent. Mm-hmm. So if we end up spending one point or two point two million dollars, then to claw back fifty one percent, they would have to pay us eight point eight or nine million, mm-hmm. and we would still own twenty four percent of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether they could raise the money or not, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're going forward with it, and we hope to get some drills on the property this summer. We've conducted some uh, some deep IP work out under the lake. And the attraction to the play is that there are two big deformation zones that that project across under the lake, but the bottom of the lake is heavily mineralized, and nobody's ever really been able to look through those mineralized sediments. Mm -hmm. And this new iPower 3D work that we did this winter, we think has seen through it. We haven't got the final report yet, but we've seen enough sniffs Mm -hmm. so that we've got a number of really quite exciting targets. And this summer, we plan to drill on the land-based portion of the claims. And then, basically, once the ice comes in in February, we'll be drilling out on the ice. Mm-hmm. And we've got, I've already got, I've got roughly a million dollars in the Treasury right now to fund the first portion of the land-based drilling. Mm-hmm. And then and we very likely would be looking for further flow-through financing later in the year uh, for drilling on the ice. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a very speculative grassroots exploration play within three or four kilometers of the highest grade mine in the country. It's, mm-hmm. you know, we're right in the heart of elephant country in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you never know, and this is where uh, fortunes are made among the juniors. It's high risk, high return uh, when you have a stock, though, that's selling not a whole lot above what its, uh, uh, you know, what its shell value might be, uh, and you have some possibilities there. You know, it's, it's the kind of thing I tell my subscribers. 
put up to 5%, you know, put a couple of percentage points of your portfolio in something like this, and if it hits real big, an $0.08 cent stock can go to an $0.80 cent stock or an $8 stock even fairly quickly with some good drill results. I'm not saying by any means that I believe that's going to happen or I don't believe it or disbelieve it, but it's, it's always possible, and you watch these things day by day um, or report by report, and sooner or later, more often than not, in a bull market, uh, you start to get some joy out of some drill holes, and that's that's very exciting. Ian, it is a, it is an exciting play, no doubt about it. Are these fairly deep deep drill targets that you're looking at? Uh, well, you know, we currently are budgeting for five holes of roughly 900, 300 meters would be close to 1,000 feet. That would be the preliminary program. We haven't finalized the specific targets, but we got we've got some pretty good leads on it, and we are in discussion with drillers to get the drills on the property in July and August. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fantastic. One point I might yeah. one point I might make on the eight cent price. Yes. The market in the stock is eight to ten and a half. Okay, so it's the last the last sale happened to be a small amount at the eight cent level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the la- I raised one point one million in February at ten and a half cents for the mm-hmm. uh, flow through financing. Mm-hmm. So that's but more of a look. It's a very thin trader. Right at this point in time, it's very thin. Obviously. Uh, with some news, with some news and some uh, marketing efforts on the part of the company, obviously, I'd be more interested in the stock, I would imagine. And nothing, uh, nothing better going for for all of this whole industry than what I like to call is the bull market of a lifetime in the in the junior sector. Uh, I haven't seen anything like it, Ian. You and I have been around long enough to remember what it was like in the late 70s when when the junior sector took off, and that was pretty exciting. But this is uh, a magnitude of times bigger, isn't it? Well, in the junior sector, and the junior sector in the over the last year and a half or so really hasn't played at all. Yeah, uh, there individual stories have played partially, but you haven't had that kind of climate where you know the so-called when the tide comes in, all the boats rise. Right. Or that wonderful line that Howard Ruff used years ago that when the wind blows, even the turkeys fly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen anything like that yet. But you know that somewhere between sixteen hundred and two thousand on the gold price. You know, the hurricane force winds are going to blow right through the sector. And the turkeys are going to fly like mad. Uh, and probably re- be recruited by the Air Force. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also true, though, that uh, they're not just turkeys. I mean, we are seeing real wealth developed by the junior sector, and that is what's exciting about it um, in, in this kind of a bull market. I want to thank you very much, Ian, for sharing your wisdom, your insights in the markets, uh, various markets. I'm sure we could have going on for quite a while while longer, but I know you want to get out on the golf course and you have a lot of work to do. Thank you so much for sharing your... Um, oh, no, I should ask you before we say goodbye, people should uh, to be able to subscribe to Deliberations, um, where can they go? And they just uh, they Google look, your name? Yeah, they'd have to... They'd have, well, they, if they, they would have to do a Google search for Ian McAvity Deliberations. Okay. And they'll find a web page at chartguide.com. Okay. That, that gives all of the details. I don't operate my own website, but my chart provider puts a, a chart uh, puts a, a web page up that we that has links to me. That's fantastic. Dot com slash deliberations. Excellent. Okay, good. Well, I hope our, our listeners will take advantage uh, of that offer. Go out and, and learn more about deliberations. It's an excellent newsletter. It's one I subscribe to. Get every month. One of the few that I say this is top. This is one of the first things I got to pay attention to when it comes in the mail. Um, so I thank you again, Ian, for being with us and sharing your views with us and your wisdom on the markets. Folks, don't go away. I will be right back with Mike Hoffman. He's the president of Crocodile Gold. 
that's a company that is a sponsor of this show. <clears throat> it's also a company that is growing its gold production in northern Australia. So don't go away. We'll hear what Mike Hoffman has to say about the growing gold production there. Don't go away. Community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Entertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Entertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CNS. Sex Exchange. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital, combined with advanced technology, will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH. Origa Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific Flin Flon Greenstone Belt. Origa's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground ramp, year-round roads, and exploration access. Origa plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Origa Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA. Trevally Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Trevally trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. 
All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try to you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program welcome back to turning hard times into good times i am your host jay taylor and i'm really pleased to have with me once again mike hoffman he is the president uh of crocodile gold corp um, and uh he uh, he is back again as i said has been with us a number of times crocodile gold corp trades on the toronto exchange under the symbol crk 315.9 million shares outstanding trading earlier today at 76 cents so it gives it a market cap of just a little under 250 million welcome again mike to turning hard times into good times well thanks for having me again on the show jay um we've your company has gone through some pretty difficult times and i know that it's uh, it's sort of common for ceos and presidents to blame uh, their lack of uh, of success sometimes on weather but it really is true that you in Australia and northern Australia at least had an incredibly wet season uh, that cut back your operations very significantly. Talk to us a little bit uh, about your operations for the first quarter of this year, which uh, and I believe you just released some financials today. Could you give us a sense of you know how did the company do the first quarter and how much of the shortfall might have been attributed to uh, to unusually uh, wet weather? Yeah. Uh- that's, uh, we came out with our first quarter results uh, today. Um, we had put out the uh, production results about a month previously. So we had produced um, 14,682 ounces in the first quarter. Um, we were milling 315,000 tons. So the grade was a little higher, the recovery was a little higher, but the throughput through the mill was only about uh, 60% of what it is normally. Mm. And uh, what I would say, too, is the... Uh, um, the actual ounce production was probably about seventy uh, percent of what it is normally. So we would have liked to have been between twenty and twenty-five thousand ounces. Um, what it, you know, what happened? You know, the big thing is um, it, we're mainly open pit production. Uh, we had some record rains, the highest in seventy years. Uh, just in January to March, it was uh, one point seven meters, or almost six feet of rain. Um, it was what it would do is. You would just get mining a certain day. You'd have one of these torrential events, and the pit would fill full of three, four feet of water. You'd have to pump it all out again and then start mining again. Mm. 
And there were some times where in previous wet seasons, you know, you'd have one of these isolated events, you'd pump it out, you'd be back producing within a day. For mm-hmm. us, we'd, we'd go, you know, we'd have the event, we'd pump everything out, and then we'd have another event right after. So mm-hmm. there was times where you might have a week and a half where you didn't, uh, you couldn't get back in the pit, or sometimes it was even two or three weeks. Uh, we ended up stockpiling about a month's worth of ore before the wet season, but we used mm-hmm. that up in, in January. And, it, you know, just to put it in perspective, Ranger Uranium, which is near us, it's owned by Rio Tinto, uh, they shut down in January, and apparently they won't start up until August. Mm. So for them, they've, they were really hit catastrophically for us. Mm. Uh, the wet season ended in mid-April, and we were up running normally, and we have been running normally ever since. So um, I am pleased to say we're, uh, we're, you know, we're generating positive cash flow from the operations from April on. Um, things have returned to normal. But what it meant for the first quarter is from the operations itself, we lost approximately $2.4 million, uh, because our cash cost, although we received $1,389 for the gold, the cost itself was 1540 And then we ended up um, spending another $2.4 million sort of on working capital movements and corporate uh, general and administrative. And so the total loss for the quarter was $7 million, which included the depreciation and amortization and the stock-based compensation and reclamation cost. Mm-hmm. So some of those were non-cash items. Mm-hmm. The good news is uh, we had gone to market and we had raised uh, $85 million. So our working capital at the end of the first quarter was $90 million, And it's still um, somewhere between 75 and $80 million right now. So mm-hmm. uh, financially, we're in excellent shape. Um, you know the the first quarter is behind us. Um, you know that you know we did do what we could to mitigate the effects of the first quarter. One of the things we did too is we spent a lot of time and effort on some longer term mill maintenance items. Uh, we ended up relining the ball mills during the wet season, and we did some uh, maintenance uh, work that will help uh, later on this year. So we don't expect to have to reline the mills until later on in 2011. So we should have a good run of production for the rest of the year. Um, we did whatever we could to, you know, ahead of time so that it won't affect us later on. Mm-hmm. Um, the nice thing is uh, that the uh, Cosmo development is proceeding very well. Uh, one of the things I'd like to say, too, is we, uh, we try to update that um, the progress of the Cosmo development on our investor pre- presentation at least twice a month so investors can see how things are going. Uh, we've already gone past the first crosscut going into the ore. So we could go in, you know, we could have done a symbolic sort of mining a little bit of ore, but really our priority is we want to continue get that ramp going as, as deep as possible because by the end of the year we want to be able to access at least a couple years' worth of production. And the other thing is we want to establish our permanent ventilation system. The pits dewatered enough that we could establish that permanent ventilation and once we establish that permanent ventilation, we could add uh, some extra equipment and then look at uh, opportunities like, um, you know, mining more ore. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the good thing is things are going well. The contractor's doing a good job. We've got a really good team there. And then we're also uh, optimizing the mine plan so that we can incorporate as much as possible, um, you know, future expansions and want to mitigate any potential risk as far as uh, mining in the future there. Mm-hmm. Well, I noticed that um, uh, that you are also 
the company is planning on expanding its exploration project. Uh, it had a $5 million budget. It's increased that to $11 million. Would you care to comment on that? What are the goals of the new, more aggressive exploration program? Well, the big thing is, I mean, we have the funds to do it. Um, we've got a great team uh, led by uh, uh, Bill Nielsen, our new Vice President of Exploration, and Mark Edwards. Um, we've been mobilizing uh, drills to uh, um, the site. The big two priorities are COSMO. Um, we want to upgrade the existing uh, resources to higher levers, levels of confidence, primarily on the eastern loads. But on the western loads, we feel it's been historically underexplored. And we've got some holes in that western loads, and I expect to re release those shortly. And I think uh, it's going to show investors some of the potential of that west load that it could actually increase the overall resource substantially there. And what it does is the to go to the western loads from the existing development will be less than uh, 150 meters. So any of the development we do underground can access, access both the eastern and western loads. So mm -hmm. it does give you the potential to expand production. And mm -hmm. then the other area is Union Reefs right near the existing mill. We've got some potential high-grade underground deposits, uh, one at Prospect Lady Alice and another one at Cross Course. Prospect Lady Alice are high-grade narrow vein deposits where Cross Course is sort of, um, you know, 20 to 30 meters of potential 4 to 6 gram a ton material, something similar to Cosmo. So mm -hmm. we want to, uh, those are our priority targets for this year. Uh, we also would be looking at uh, doing some exploration on some of the base metals. Um, later this month, we'll also be flying an extensive airborne geophysical survey over the Cosmo area, the north end of the Howley Belt, the base metal area, uh, Mod Creek, and there was a few other areas that uh, we're going to fly. We ended up um, have that map in the investor presentation, too, where we're going to be flying. So... Uh, what we found is a lot of this area has been historically been underexplored. The last major exploration was done in the mid-1980s. So we think with some of the new techniques, we could generate a lot more targets. But not only that, any of the drilling we do, we want to be able to get the best bang for our buck. Mm -hmm. Well, I know, Mike, when I first started looking at this story, one of the things that really attracted, to, attracted me was the uh, was the enormous exploration potential that the, that your ground had there. And... You know, as I look forward to it, uh, of course, the disappointment has come in the operational side so far. Uh, Mother Nature can wreak havoc, and that certainly was a big part of it. Though I like to always sort of build into my own thinking, expectations for new mining operations are almost always going to have some kinks until they get up and running. Let's say uh, you had a $1,540 uh, uh, $1, cost per ounce, I should say, for... 14,300 ounces that you produced. Now, if you got that 20 to 25,000 ounces, uh, your cost would have been what, more or less? It should have been uh, somewhere between 900 and 1,000. Yeah. So we would I have mean, had at least a, a couple hundred dollars uh, or three. Or, yeah. But the real key is when you bring in Cosmo, just Cosmo itself would produce 100,000 ounces a year at sort of 550 cash cost. So mm -hmm. what it does is it lowers the overall cash cost profile down to the, call it the 650, the 750 range. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, an appreciably uh, better overall margin. So it really is the, the flagship of the operation moving forward, and, and it's just critical that we do a good job of bringing it in, into production.
So Cosmo is a thing that we need to watch. And as you were saying, twice a month, you said you do updates on, on the progress yeah, there? No, and we actually take pictures of the open pit dewatering we're doing, too, just to mm-hmm. show everybody that things are progressing and mm-hmm. uh, you know, things are on schedule. It's, uh, you know, the more information we can put out there, the better it is. Well, that's really good. Now, you have recently, you've got a new president taking over pretty soon, and, and uh, tell us about him. Yeah, um, I've known Chantel Lavoie. He's going to start uh, in mid-June, and I'm going to uh, slow down a little bit, uh, remain a director, and, and help uh, Chantel in the transition, and obviously help him and support him in any way I can moving forward. Uh, Chantel's a mining engineer. Uh, like I said, I've known him for a number of years. Um, he previously, in his existing job right now, he's the chief operating officer and he was the acting uh, uh, CEO of De Beers Canada. So De Beers has two diamond mines in Canada right at the moment and one development project, so he was uh, taking care of those. And he, he spent close to 10 years in Barrick um, working in Nevada at the Gold Strike property. Mm-hmm. So he was instrumental in the startup of Rodeo and Meikle and a few of the other deposits. Very experienced mine operator. Um, he's uh, developed in uh, mines, constructed mines. Uh, very, very good with people. Um, the first thing he's going to do when he starts uh, is we're both going to site. We're going to meet all the people at site spend some time talking about the strategy moving forward and uh, then he's he's right into uh, uh, doing some marketing uh, talking to investors but his plans are to make frequent trips to site um, you know you know sort of get to learn all the people get to know all the people and uh, um, add some value and I have no doubt he will he's a he's a tremendous uh, guy and I think he's going to be a real asset to the company uh, Mike, before we let you go, I noticed another news item recently uh, that your company put out uh, that Crocodile is optioning out Mo- the Mario property to Fortuna Silver. What is that a silver project, and, and if so, where is it? Um, it's a sort of lead-zinc uh, silver project in Peru. Uh, I think it's about four hours north of Lima. Um, we ended up acquiring the property when we did a reverse takeover of a company called Francor back in 2009. It was their mm-hmm. primary property. Um, it's never, I guess, been a, it's a non-core asset. I guess it always has been for us. Um, we really, you know, believe we should be concentrating in Australia. Uh, Fortuna um, operates a mine in Peru and also is uh, going to be building one in Mexico. Um, they, they know the area. They know the people. I think uh, we wish them you know, all the success in, in, in them optioning the property. And for us, it actually you know, it could give us up to $4 million uh, for our shareholders. And then if they exercise the and buy out the NSR, it could be another $3 million. So I think it's one of those win-win situations where mm-hmm. we, you know, we, we hope Fortuna is successful in their endeavors and, uh, and that you know, they uh, end up sort of buying out the uh, royalty and everything, and, you know, we our shareholders uh, benefit from that too, so. Sure, no doubt. And uh, I do know Fortuna. It's a company that I've covered in the past, and they do they do know what they're doing in the silver business in that part of the world, no question about that. So it, uh, it makes a lot of sense. It's obviously not a, a major focus of your company and, and, and a continent away, uh, a long continent away, so it, it makes a lot of sense, it seems to me. Well, uh, Mike, I think, uh, is there anything else you'd like to like to mention maybe before we conclude our conversation today? Uh, I think the biggest thing is uh, you're going to see a more normal uh, second quarter and look out for some of these expiration results. Uh, 
We, uh, I know we, uh, I saw some core there when I was at site a couple weeks ago. It looked good to me. And, uh, you know, once we get the results, we want to have a steady stream of uh, press releases uh, through the summer and later this year. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, what I hope happens uh, will be pretty exciting for the company moving forward. Very good. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mike, uh, for sharing uh, your insights on your company again with us. Uh, We wish you all the best. And uh, until we speak again, all the best to you. Well, folks, don't go away. I'm going to be back with just a couple of quick comments and conclusions to today's show. Uh, A little comment on the market, perhaps, and, uh, and a couple of other items. So don't go away. I'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Origa Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific Flin Flon Greenstone Belt. Origa's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000 ton per day mill, developed underground rent, year-round roads, and exploration access. Origa plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Origa Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA. Dravali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Dravali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital, combined with advanced technology, will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH. Entertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Entertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CN. 
Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome to the human race some kind of love and right you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I am struggling with a cold here today, and so I've uh, arranged to have only a couple of minutes left to, uh, to talk to you uh, this week. Uh, I just uh, I've been up here in Vancouver. I'm talking to you from uh, beautiful British Columbia, Vancouver, looking out over the harbor here. Uh, a beautiful place, one of the the greatest places I think on on the face of the earth. Uh, we've uh, I've been involved in interviewing a number of very exciting companies, uh, companies uh, in the gold sector, the silver sector, and some other things like tungsten, uh, uranium. Some really uh, I think some really extraordinarily opportunities, a couple of companies that you are familiar with on this show, Barkerville Gold uh, and Metanor Resources, were companies that I also interviewed, and we will have those interviews available for you within the next week or so, maybe within the next two weeks, they should all be posted, hopefully, Uh, and um, you can can watch and get updated on those companies and learn about some new, very exciting companies. Speaking of exciting companies, next week I'm going to have with me uh, the new president of uh, of Sandgold, I interviewed him and he uh, for a pre-recorded interview, and he will be on the show next week. Uh, I'm going to be traveling to Switzerland, and so next week's show will be totally pre-recorded. Uh, but I have gotten really excited about Sandgold, and I think you're going to understand why once you listen uh, to the new president who will be with us, uh, who will be with us next week. Um, also, let me just say here. Um, Lost track of my train of thought for a second here. Um, 
we will be with, uh, we're also going to be having another very interesting, our main guest uh, next week uh, is going to be with us to talk about a subject that is sort of a little bit far away from what we normally talk about, uh, Dr. Christopher Fitchner. Uh, he's a medical doctor. He's going to talk about his new book called Cannabinomics, and that's about uh, marijuana and how marijuana was such an effective drug, has been used medicinally over a number of years for some 26 or so different uh, medical problems. Uh, and and uh, he talks about how ineffective the war on drugs uh, has been, huge expense for the U.S. government. Uh, and in the meantime, there are some pharmaceutical companies that are really uh, starting to uh, to develop uh, some drugs of, of use, apparently, using marijuana. Anyway, an interesting uh, sort of political economic commentary as well uh, as a little bit of medical knowledge uh, about this uh, controversial drug. Uh, I, that's really about all I have to say this week, uh, except I think you should really tune in to my discussion uh, with the Sandgold president. I think you won't be disappointed. Uh, I just want to thank those who made this show logistically possible, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Justin Jackman, my engineer. Thanks to both of you for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening to this show and making it the number one show on the Voice America business channel. And uh, thanks to our sponsors, of course, too, for making this show economically viable. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.